All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here today. I, I feel like after the way the Oregon State game went last night, we just need to take a collective moment of grief turn all that we're feeling and experiencing over to Jesus. Um, it was funny. I was watching it with some friends last night, and very quickly, they found a silver lining as it ended. They said, you know, the good news is Washington beat Oregon by three, but they only beat us by two. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Well, <laughs> for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Mike King, and I'm one of the pastors here at Suburban. And this morning, we're continuing on a teaching series where we're looking at the book of Esther. So I'd love to invite you to, to turn with me in the Bible to Esther chapter 4. If it would help for any reason, there's some red Bibles in those seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number that's there on the screen. But a little bit about this, we're, we're spending some time studying this particular ancient text together because as we've seen, there's so much in this text that can challenge us but also encourage us. So what we're doing each week in this series, we're, we're going back to the text and we're just trying to find one lesson. Okay, what, what, was, what was one of the things God was trying to communicate to the original audience back then? And then we're taking that lesson and bringing it into our lives in the present to talk about uh, how we can live differently, how we can follow Jesus today. And this morning, we're going to return to a passage that we've already looked at in the series, but we're going to be coming at it from a little bit of a different angle. So a quick recap on the story of Esther to get us up to where we're going to be reading today. At the start of the story, we meet Xerxes, who is the king of the Persian Empire. Uh, he doesn't come off in a particularly good light. At the start of the story, he spends a week drinking with his friends, and at the end of a week of heavy drinking, he comes up with what he thinks is a fantastic idea. Uh, he invites the queen to come and basically parade herself around in front of all of his drunken buddies. Uh, she refuses to do that, and he realizes this makes him look bad. So he deposes her as queen, and she disappears from the story from that point on. Uh, then he realizes, well, I got a vacancy. I need to find a new queen. So he appoints officials to go all throughout the empire and find beautiful young women, bring them to the capital, where he basically sexually auditions them. He sleeps with a different girl every night until the text says he figures out which one pleases him the most, and then that girl is going to be the new queen. So he ends up picking a young Jewish woman named Esther. And although at this point in the story, Esther chooses to keep her Jewish ethnicity hidden from the king. He, he doesn't know about that about her. So sometime after that, Esther's uncle, a Jewish man named Mordecai, really offends a guy named Haman, who's one of Xerxes' top officials. And Haman is so angry, he decides it's not enough to just get back at Mordecai. He's really going to teach him a lesson by not just punishing him. He decides he should kill every Jewish person in the entire empire, because that's not overkill, right? That'll teach him a lesson. So he goes to the king. And he convinces the king that the Jewish people are nothing but trouble. And the king says, oh, well, we should do something. What should we do? And he says, well, we should make a law. We should roll the dice, and the dice will pick a day out in the future. And on that day, we should say it's completely legal for anybody in the empire to kill any Jewish person they want, take all of their stuff, and there's, like, no repercussions. There's no consequences. So Xerxes is like, well, it sounds like a great plan. So they make that law, and they send it out. And this sets up the central tension of the book. By the time we, we get to the end of chapter 3 of Esther, God's people are in danger, and we don't know if or how God is going to work to save them. So that's where we're going to pick up the story, and we're going to start reading in the last verse of chapter 3 and then dive into chapter 4. Um, but as we've been discussing, the, the book of Esther has real historical significance for the Jewish people. In fact, one of the religious festivals that they celebrate every year, the Festival of Purim, it happens usually in early March. When they gather for that festival, they remember the events of the story. And when they gather together, they actually have the entire book of Esther read out loud to the people who are gathered to remember it. 
And when they read it out loud, it's very much of an audience participation kind of thing. Um, so, for example, the, the two heroes of the story, Esther and Mordecai, whenever their names are read, everybody in the audience just goes wild with cheering and applause, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And whenever the name of the villain, Haman, is about to be read, people will boo and they will hiss. The goal is like they're trying to like drown out his name so that you can't, he's so evil you can't even hear his name being read. Um, so we're going to do that with the part of the passage that we're going to read this morning. We're going to do this same audience participation reading. Um, so to get, get warmed up for that, um, let's, let's practice a little bit. So uh, what are you going to do if I say the word Esther? Yes. <laughs> I don't know who it is that's been sitting over here the last couple of weeks, but they got some passion about this, okay? Uh, what about if I say the name Haman? Perfect. And last one, Mordecai. Okay, great. Y'all are are ready to go. So let's jump into this. So again, the the, the law has just been written and, and they're sending it out. It says, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, kind of quick pause on the reading here. Uh, Mordecai wants to communicate with Esther. Esther's in the palace. He can't go in because he's dressed in these mourning clothes. For the next 10 verses, they have this kind of like game of telephone where they're passaging messages to each other through a, a guy who's there at the gate. So we keep reading. We're starting in, in chapter 4. It says, When Esther's uh, eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in front of the city, in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. I forgot that detail. Part of the deal, part of the way Haman convinces the king to issue this law is he's like, I'll make a hefty donation to the empire for this. So that's part of it too. So anyway, Mordecai shows all that with him. He also gave to Hathak a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation of the Jewish people that had been published in Susa. And he gave it to him to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has only one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Mordecai really wants Esther to speak up. Like, you're in a position to to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. But she's reluctant to do it. Right, because there's a law in the books. If somebody just wanders into the king's presence, they will be executed, unless at the last minute the king decides to spare their life. And Esther says, the king hadn't called for me in like 30 days. I don't exactly know what's going on here. Maybe it's marital kind of like, she just doesn't know where she stands with the king. So she's a little reluctant to do this because she literally might lose her life. So that's what's going on. We'll jump back in at verse 12 and we read, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, 
he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. All right, good. Way to play along. I appreciate that. You guys did a good job with that. Um, I want to draw your attention to what it says in verse 14, because in many ways, this is, this is the very heart of the book right here. Yeah, this is Mordecai speaking, and he says, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther, maybe there's a little bit more going on here than meets the eye. Now, again, Esther ended up as queen in a pretty horrific way. Like, I cannot imagine that when Esther was a little girl growing up, she thought, you know, my deepest dream and desire is that one day one of the king's officials will see me, basically kidnap me from my parents, put me in the palace where I'll have to sexually audition for the king in the hope that I become the queen and not one of the thousand other women who are just relegated to the harem. But nevertheless, like, that is what happened to her. Like, it's a broken world, right? And sometimes we end up in places we never imagined we would be in because of the brokenness of humanity around us. So Esther didn't necessarily want to end up in this position, but nevertheless, here she is. And right here in this verse, Esther finds herself at a moment of decision. What is she going to do? Well, as we read through the rest of the story, we realize that she, she takes Mordecai up on his challenge. She does decide to go and see the king, as she says that she will. And the king is happy to see her, so he spares her life. And eventually she shares what's going on. She asks the king to intercede, and the king intercedes, saving the Jewish people. And in this moment, what Esther does, this becomes a defining moment for the people of Israel. Right? Even to this day, every year, they gather together in the festival of Purim, and they remember this story. They read this story because this is a significant, defining moment for them as a people. It's one of the things that marks their identity and their history. But this is not just a defining moment for the people of Israel. Like, really, this is a defining moment for Esther, too. And, and it's here that one of the lessons that we can pick from the story speaks to our lives today. Identification with God's people is a defining moment in our life, right? Identifying with God, with God's people, with his will for our life, that is a defining moment in our life. Like, when, Esther, when Mordecai's message comes to Esther, she's got a choice to make, right? She can do nothing and just keep living as normal in the palace, or she can choose to identify with the Jewish people. And here's the thing, that was a choice she had to make because apparently not many people knew that she was Jewish. She hadn't shared that with the king. I'm guessing nobody in the palace knew, which means that she probably hasn't been doing all of the things that good Jewish people are supposed to be doing. She's probably not keeping kosher food laws, observing all the Jewish religious festivals. Those were the things that made the, the Jewish people stand out. So for Esther, if she's gonna choose to identify with the people of God, on the one hand, she's kind of having to say, well, I haven't really been living the way I'm supposed to be living for the last little while. But even beyond that, if she chooses to identify with the people of God, she's basically standing up and saying, I need to be included in this group of people who have a death warrant on them right now. So in this moment, Esther has to decide who she really is. And here's a really interesting little side note about Esther. I don't know if you noticed this as you were reading through the text, but Esther is the only person in the story who has two names. 
Right? When she's first introduced back in chapter 2, we read about it. It, it says that she's, her name is actually Hadassah, which is a Hebrew name. But then it goes on to say that she's also known as Esther, which is a Persian name. So even with those names, you think about it, Esther really does live. She's got a foot in both of these worlds, in her Jewish identity and her role in the Persian court. And, and she's kind of splitting the difference between those two things until we get to this point in the story, and she has to make a choice. And she chooses to identify with God's people. Right? She chooses to take responsibility and to accept the opportunity that God is giving her to be an agent that he's going to work through to bring his hope and his rescue and his healing to the world. And here's the thing. It is incredibly unlikely that any of us are ever going to find ourselves in the exact position that Esther is in. Um, but all of us, all of us, we face defining moments in our lives. And for every single person, right, the most important defining moment is how we choose to respond when we fully understand the good news of the gospel, the grace of God, what, is, what Jesus Christ has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. When we hear that, we have to make a choice about whether or not we are going to identify with God or not. We, it, it forces us to make a decision. We can continue to live life on our own and decide that we can be the master of our own fate and you know, we can kind of ma- build our identity and who we are and what we do and what we accomplish. We can decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. Or we can do what David was talking about in the prayer, right? We can choose to receive the identity that comes as beloved, forgiven children of God. We can choose to invite Jesus to be the Lord and leader of our life and and receive the grace and the mercy and the hope that comes from that. And when we do that, as one pastor put it, we find a purpose bigger than our own concerns and problems. We find a hope that goes beyond our own death. It transforms us into people moved by the Holy Spirit who become human agents of God's grace and love in the world. Right, so, so deciding what are we going to do when we understand who Jesus is and what he offers us, that is the defining moment in our lives. But for those of us who make the decision to follow Jesus, to put our trust and faith in him, it's actually just the first of these defining moments. Because really, if you think about it, the lifetime of discipleship, a lifetime of following Jesus It's just a series of these defining moments that we face day in and day out where we have to consciously choose to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to actually live the lives that God is calling us to live, to actually live into and live from the identity that we have in him. Like discipleship is this never-ending process of partnering with the work that God is doing in us to continue moving forward into the full and free life that he has for us. So that's, that's one of the big lessons that I think we can pull from this part of the story. Identification with God's people is a defining moment in our lives. Uh, And one of the things that I think is wonderful about the book of Esther is it shows us that really everybody has this opportunity. I mean, even people who you think are in a place where, like, God's never going to show up. I mean, think about the Persian Empire at this time. The Persian Empire is kind of the most secular, hostile-to-faith place that you can imagine. But God still works through Esther there, uh, just like he was able to work through Joseph in Egypt just like he was able to work through Daniel in Babylon, right? In God's plan, doesn't matter where you are, everybody has the opportunity to respond faithfully to what it is that he's calling them to do. It's true for us wherever we are. But here's the thing. I don't want you to miss this. While we all have this opportunity to respond to God, there's a risk when we do this. Again, think about Esther. When Esther chose to identify with God's people, she realized she was running a risk. That's why she said, yeah, I will go to the king. Uh, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I mean, think about that. Esther was queen, but she was willing to lose her life if it came to that. 
And even if the king didn't kill her, she was willing to lose the palace. I mean, think about the queen in chapter one. That's the last example of a queen we have who kind of went against maybe what the king wanted, didn't do exactly what he was saying, and she gets exited, stays left from the story pretty quickly. So, you know, worst case scenario, Esther loses her life. Maybe best case scenario, she's deposed and she loses her job. Um, and, and I think what Esther's story shows us is that sometimes to be faithful, you have to be willing to lose the palace. I mean, that's the risk that Esther is willing to take here. In order to identify with the people of God, in order to prevent the genocide of her people, she's willing to risk her life, and she's willing to risk her status as queen, right? To be faithful, to serve God, she's, willing, she's got to risk losing all of that. And to her great, great credit, she does, right? She says, I'm going to go in, and if I perish, I perish. And again, there's another lesson for all of us here, right? Again, we're, we're probably never going to find ourselves in exactly the same position that Esther's in, where our life is on the line. But as followers of Jesus, we, we need to be willing to give up, to lose what we have, wherever we are, whatever that might be, for the sake of identifying with God and his people. Again, none of us are on an actual throne, um, but we've all got stuff financial resources, whatever that means. We all have, have status in this world because of our education or our resources or our personality or our history or our race or our gender or our background or the family that we were born into. And for the most part, a lot of those things, we don't get to choose. That's just the life that we are born into. So, so having some of those things in our lives is not necessarily a bad thing unless we end up valuing those things more than we value God and his work in our lives. Unless we are at the point where we decide, I'm just not quite willing to give that up if God asks me for that. So again, most of us aren't on a throne, but we would really benefit from putting ourselves in Esther's shoes and saying, okay, would I be willing to risk losing what I have in order to be obedient to God? Like, that is a question worth pondering. And not in a, you give it 15 seconds on a Sunday morning kind of thing. That's a question worth really carving out some time and stopping and praying, inviting the Holy Spirit to come and just say, God, would, would you help me know where am I with this? What, what are you maybe calling me to do? Right? Sometimes to be faithful, you have to be willing to risk losing the palace. I think the question that we all have to wrestle with is what is our palace? Right? What, what my God might be calling us to do? Um, so think back to the lessons that we're looking at. Right? Identification with God's people is a defining moment in life. Uh, but there's a risk when we do that, right? We may end up losing something that, that is meaningful to us. Um, but there's one other thing that I want to highlight from Esther, and, and I'm really actually grateful that we have a chance to talk about it in this sermon today, because I, I realize this has not been an easy sermon series for some of you. I was talking to somebody this morning who was like, I think this has been good, but you know, when I was growing up, I went to Sunday school, I got kind of the, the Sunday school VeggieTales version of Esther, and I had this idea that she was this sort of perfect person who never made any mistakes and there was no any problems or anything like that and then you talk about how she asked for another day of genocide and that seemed really vindictive and it turns out that Esther surprise surprise is a broken flawed person just like you and me and for some people <laughs> I've been watching your faces I feel like I've been kicking your puppy or something during this sermon now, just to be clear I don't kick puppies on a regular basis but we've probably all met some never never mind but just, I'm really glad that we have a chance to talk about this next idea because Esther, there's just something so, so valuable about Esther, right? And I hope this can kind of redeem her for you. She might not be perfect, but there's so much value in this story. Because here's the thing. In a way that very, very few other characters in the entire Old Testament do, Esther points us towards Jesus. 
Right? For whatever reason, maybe it's because of prejudice that she's a woman. This is not something that pastors and, and commentaries have talked about much over the years. But think about it. Esther points us to Jesus in a way that few other characters do. Esther made the choice to identify with her people and risk her life in order to save them. And in that sense, her actions point us towards Jesus and show us something about his heart for us. And again, this is an idea I first heard a pastor named Tim Keller uh, talk about, and it, it really it had a big impact on how I read Esther's story. Again, she was in the palace, but she risked it all by identifying with her people in order to save them. She basically entered into a conversation with the king where she said, Xerxes, I'm Jewish. I am now under the very same death sentence that all my other people, but I am coming to you on their behalf asking you to intercede. Like, she risked losing the palace and her life in order to save them. And that is so, so admirable. And it points us to the even greater sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Because after all, Jesus wasn't in an earthly palace, right? Jesus was in the ultimate heavenly palace, right? He, was, he enjoyed unbroken communion with the, the Father. He experienced a joy that goes beyond anything we can imagine here on earth. And he didn't just risk losing it. He did lose it, right? He gave it up. As Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, He said, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just risk losing the palace, he actually lost it. Jesus didn't just risk losing his life, He actually lost it, and he willingly laid it down. And why did he do that? Right? He did it for us. He did it so that he could identify with us, becoming one of us, so that he could save us. That's what we were singing about right after communion. Jesus paid it all. That's what that song is talking about. Again, Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, Jesus came to be one of us so that he could live the way we should have lived and earn the blessing of obedience. And then he died the death we should have died so that he takes our curse for our record and we get his blessing for our record. I mean, Jesus chose to do all of that to save us. And in that sense, Jesus really is the ultimate Esther. She is a powerful example of the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus would fully and perfectly embody in his life here on earth and the sacrifice he gave for us. And as we prepare to close out our time together today, um, there's really just one central question that I think we all need to wrestle with, which is how are we going to respond to the defining moments that we're facing today? Uh, To help us with that, in just a few moments, I'm going to pray, and the musicians are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in kind of an extended time of of singing. And during that time, we're going to open up the front of the sanctuary. Uh, We're going to have some of our elders and staff and lay leaders come. They're going to be sitting on the front row. And you are welcome to come up and sit with one of them if you want. You're welcome to come and kneel on these steps and pray. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to interact with God just around whatever he may be doing in your heart right now. Uh, You know, if you come up, one of those people will probably come and and sit beside you, offer to pray with you, and they'll pray with you if you'd like. If you'd rather pray by yourself, you can just kind of wave them off and be like, no, it's just between me and God, and that's totally okay too. But we'll have a chance to do that in just a moment. So really, what what is the defining moment that you're facing today, and how are you going to respond? Right. For some of us, that defining moment is making the choice to identify with Jesus for the first time, giving our lives over to his love and leadership, receiving the offer of grace and forgiveness that comes when we put our trust in him. 
For others, we've, we've already made that decision, but maybe there's some area in our life, a, a hurt or a hang-up or a habit, there, there's something where we're just not getting traction into in moving into the life God has for us, and we need to talk with them about that. For others of us, God might be nudging us to let us know, hey, there's some particular palace that we're really not willing to give up if he asks us to. So what I want to encourage you to do in, in these moments is just do whatever business with God you need to do. But I do want to encourage you, whether you come forward and pray or whether you pray in your seats, just remember that the God who is here, the Jesus who is here and ready to meet with us, he understands where we are and he can help. Listen to the way that the author of Hebrews describes him. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right? That Jesus that is being described, he is here today through the power of the Spirit ready to meet with us. So as we move into this time of response, I just want to encourage you to approach him with confidence, knowing that in him you can receive the mercy and the grace that you need. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful um, that you are not a God who is removed from our actual experiences, that when we struggle, when we're tempted, uh, when we fall, you understand what that was like because you were human and you experienced every temptation that we had, but you managed to do it in a way that didn't involve sinning. So Lord, there's a lot of people in the room today and we have people who are joining us and watching us online and I don't know what specific step they need to take with you. There's no way I could know all of the defining moments that different ones of us are facing, but you do. And we trust, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can meet each one of us where we are, and you can give us the mercy and the grace that we need to move forward in you. So in this time to come, Lord, as we have a moment to stop and reflect, as we pray, whether that's in our seats or or whether you, you lead us to come forward, God, I just pray that for people that you're nudging to come forward and pray and be prayed for, would you help them come forward with confidence, knowing that they'll find the mercy and the grace that they need here. We just invite you, Lord, in these moments to come and to work and to do as you see fit. Amen.